0: Hey everybody, Jessica here. Just wanting to let you know that if you are particularly sensitive to disturbing imagery and what I would call eye shit, you might want to skip minutes 48 to 50 of this episode. Uh, good luck. Uh, bye. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton, I'm not a doctor, I, don't speak of I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Everybody. Welcome back to Fat French and Fabulous, possibly to be renamed Histories and Mysteries with Jessica and Janelle. We thought it was time for a change. I uh, I am Jessica. And
1: I'm Janelle, and I'm just really tired of everybody asking me if this podcast is in French. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you just, I just, I assumed it would be obvious that the word French was in English. <laughs> that the the, 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 the the, podcast itself was not in French, but uh, apparently not. <laughs> We like the name Fat French and
1: Fabulous, it's clever. Unfortunately, because of the name, our podcast tends to either get lumped in with weight loss podcasts, which very much is not. Um,
0: not our genre, no, absolutely not. If
1: anything, this podcast will drive you to comfort eat if you listen to enough of it. <laughs> or we get lumped in with like French learning podcasts where like we come up on playlists with like Duolingo and like we will not teach you any French at all. Once we've said our surnames, that's all the French for the episode. That's it.
0: (laughs) What we we teach you will actively make you a detriment to society.
1: I can't even help myself learn French or lose weight, so I can't help you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So today is a Canadian true crime episode, as we'll be talking about two cases that were recently ruled upon by the Ontario Superior Court. Ooh. Uh, which may or may not be taken up by the Supreme Court of Canada in the near future. It's very
1: unusual for us to do a case where, like, not everybody involved is dead. (laughs)
0: Yeah, in fact, most people I'm going to be talking about still very much alive and suffering from the repercussions of the case I'm about to tell you.
1: Very unusual. Normally we pick cases where like everybody involved who could possibly be offended by us covering their case is long dead and their children are dead and their grandchildren are almost dead.
0: (laughs) And that's really the way we like it.
1: That's the case we cover. Will our cold cases on our podcast ever be solved? No, the crimes took place in like 1903. It's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get a lot of updates episodes from us for that reason.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, have there any be- been any big big movements in the case? Well, no. The country it happened in doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah, so that one's not getting solved. <laughs> But uh, both of these cases involve the same basic charter challenge uh, which in Canadian legal parlance means they are decisions that were appealed on the basis that they violated human or civil rights coded in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's basically an off-brand version of the American Bill of Rights we got in the 80s at the same time we got a constitution. Yay! Uh, Fun fact, Canadians didn't have rights until 1982.
1: Any American who visited Canada before 1982 could just Pick up a Canadian and take them home. We were powerless <laughs> to stop it.
0: I, I think I, I'm not sure to what degree it is true in the modern day, but like I think for a very long time we would just allow you to pay an American without even transitioning into Canadian currency. <laughs> you can still
1: do that in my parents' hometown.
0: <laughs> you you can still do that in many places in Canada. We don't care. Like we're like we're off brand cold Mexico. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a little bit but well, you're going to learn a lot about the Canadian legal system which our audience Yeah, is. whether
0: you like it or not.
1: Somehow our audience is predominantly American despite the fact that we're both almost annoyingly Canadian, both of
0: us. Just relentlessly canuck. We're more
1: Canadian <laughs> than is necessary. There's
0: <laughs> Yeah, like if if you think like the average Canadian is this ostentatious about it? No, no, they're mostly Americanized generic. You could drop them in the middle of Wisconsin and there'd be no difference.
1: Most Canadians still think, we'll, we'll describe our own country and things that don't apply to Canada. They'll say, like, oh, that crime is a felony. That's not a thing that exists in Canada. I plead the fifth. Did you get your green card? That's not a thing we give to immigrants. We give them no card. <laughs> no, it's just, you're a permanent resident. We just stay. Congratulations. We also give them rights, which is an unusual thing for, you know, Canada versus the U.S., mm. but... Uh no, I've I've heard a lot of Canadians who don't know much about our own legal and civic systems. They assume that I've heard Canadians who say that we have a Congress, which is stop. You're making me sad. We all went through grade 12 social studies. You know that we
0: don't have that. <laughs> The amount of times we have to clarify to each other that we do not have a presidential system is obtuse. We have a
1: Senate, <laughs> but it's very different.
0: It's vi- so different. <laughs> it's, it's more like the House of Lords in Britain. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, it's a lifetime appointment, and we're starting to regret that.
0: <laughs> if We basically just put a bunch of artists and, like, various journalists... Who were reasonably popular in there, and then we regret it. <laughs> we allow like great physicists and like random like scientists and 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 authors <laughs> to make laws in Canada, and it's a bad idea actually. I just
1: <laughs> want to be the first famous Canadian podcaster to get a senate seat.
0: It's viable, Janelle (laughs) You could be a senator
1: It's what they do to you when they don't quite want to give you the Order of Canada But they can't figure out what else to give you
0: It's basically just an unnecessarily complicated pension for being awesome
1: (laughs) But yeah, so you're gonna learn a lot about the Canadian legal system today Which is... Exactly
0: what Fun you want. Fun facts. <laughs> and, and if you are Canadian, I'm going to handhold you through some shit. <laughs> uh, we actually had something called the, we called the Bill of Rights in the 1960s, but it had far less legal authority and probably could have been overturned by a simple majority vote in the legislature, which isn't ideal where, you know, rights are concerned. <laughs> <laughs> Should we
1: have rights? 58% say no. No more rights for us.
0: In both cases, the key legal question in the guilt of the defendant was whether or not they were capable of even understanding or controlling their actions due to an altered mental state.
1: Yes, forensic psychology. I got a very expensive master's in this, which I took in the U.S., so I actually don't know a ton about how this applies in Canada.
0: Yeah, I'm going to spend the next hour and a half mansplaining criminal intent to Janelle. Yay! (laughs) I'm gonna nod and smile. <laughs> yeah. Butch explaining I don't know. I'm 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 the closest thing we have to a man in this podcast. It's true. Considering the one time our uh, our artist Ashulovich, uh tried to apply for a job and asked me to be their reference, and the person who called me was just like, "Oh, are you the blonde?" I'm like, ha ha <laughs>
1: <laughs> "What's funny is that people who have never even seen me like people instinctively know that I'm the blonde one by my voice alone." <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, you you have a very blonde voice, <laughs> whereas whereas I have the thready alto of a lumberjack.
1: <laughs> you do have a bow tie wearing kind of voice.
0: Uh, as a bit of background, in order to convict someone of most crimes, there are two important factors that the government needs to prove. As long as it's like you know a government that like acknowledges rights. And the first is actus reus, the second is mens rea, which are Latin for guilty act and guilty mind, respectively. Essentially, did they do it, and did they do it intentionally, knowing the harm it could cause? For this episode, we're more interested in mens rea and the question of what qualifies as a guilty mind. And the reasons we're interested in that is because these two men Definitely did it. <laughs> they super did. <laughs> Ray is
1: always more interesting because, like, in the age of security footage, like Actusra is is less interesting than it's ever been. Pretty
0: easy. Like, were you there? <laughs> yup. <laughs> uh, do I have like three minutes of forty k high def security footage showing you doing it? <laughs> Boy, <Yep>. do I. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's getting increasingly easy to prove that you physically did it. <laughs> the rest is more interesting.
0: Yeah, like when you know the average public in case, you know, is this your butt, sir? And then you <laughs> have to you have to stare good and hard at that butt before you're willing to look that police officer in the eye and lie.
1: <laughs> this podcast alone will get you out of jury duty for the rest of your life,
0: Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, you're one, too much of an expert on this topic, but two, holy shit. You <laughs> know, <laughs> this podcast could get me excluded from the army during an estate of active ground war. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jessica's like showing up to jury duty, like, if nobody's gonna identify a butt for the court, I'm out. I refuse. <laughs> I only agree to participate in butt-related justice. <laughs>
0: I'm here to stamp down on buttock-related crime. (laughs) Buttholes to the people. Buttholes to the people, y'all. Funner fact, you don't have to know that what you did is illegal. You just have to do it intentionally and have the harms be reasonably predictable. You don't have to know that there's a law. That's true. Not
1: knowing the law is not a defense. You can't say I didn't know it was illegal. And, uh, I mean, in fairness, most, most crimes are a bit of a, not really a thinker. It's it's no, fairly straightforward, no. what's illegal and what's not, in terms of violent crime and criminal law.
0: Most of this shit you should not have to be told. If it's obscure, it probably involves a fine. If it involves jail time, it should have been reasonably obvious that the government would frown upon it.
1: <laughs> but yeah, you you had to not know the consequences of your actions. You had to not know that it was wrong. Which is a very different thing than not knowing it was illegal. You had to know that somebody could get hurt or that it was, it was morally the wrong thing to do. You had to have no ability to recognize that and to make that decision in the moment. It's not a knowledge question, it's a capability question. It's a question of whether you are capable of understanding that that was wrong.
0: But for most crimes, the act has to be voluntary and uncoerced. You can't accidentally steal. You can't accidentally kidnap. If you suffer an involuntary spasm and punch somebody, you're not guilty of assault. You also aren't guilty if somebody forces you to do it at gunpoint. The Petty Hearst defense. There are, however, a few caveats to this general rule. In the English-speaking world, at least, there is no such thing as a crime by omission. You can't be found criminally liable for something you didn't do. That is, unless you had an established duty of care due to the nature of your relationship with the person harmed by your inaction. Negligence! You could also be held liable outside of such a relationship for taking an action that you don't intend to be harmful, but for which harm was a foreseeable outcome, such as the case of drunk driving. This, and all other forms of negligence, are usually considered to be lesser offenses. For example, the traditional difference between first and second degree murder and manslaughter. First-degree murder is willful and premeditated. It is cold-blooded. Second-degree murder is willful but unplanned, a spur-of-the-moment decision. Voluntary manslaughter is a step below that in terms of culpability, where the offender intended to cause death or serious harm, but there were significant mitigating circumstances such as provocation or fear. Finally, there is involuntary manslaughter, otherwise known as negligent homicide, where the offender accidentally causes a death through their irresponsible actions. This is a bit of simplification, and there's some variation based on jurisdiction, but that's the basic distinction.
1: Negligence is actually something that uh, comes up in my line of work quite a bit. I don't know how much I've talked about this on this podcast, but I work in social services, so I work with the mentally ill. And if one of my clients commits suicide, which is something that happens in my line of work, I'm not criminally responsible for that, provided that I did a reasonable job of trying to prevent that. If the person told me that they were suicidal, I had to document it, and I had to take reasonable steps to try to address the issue. So negligence comes up in any kind of caregiving. If you are a medical professional, a mental health professional, a teacher, and there was something that your job reasonably entailed because you are you take care of people and you didn't do it, you fucked.
0: <laughs> Legally in Canada, you can, like... See a person in a wheelchair who's fallen down on the side of the road, and you can walk by them and not help them at all, and that is not illegal.
1: Yeah, you didn't have a duty to help that person.
0: You personally did not have a specific duty to help them. I think we would all agree that you probably had a moral duty to do something, but you didn't have a legal obligation.
1: But if you're a nurse on the clock, and you walk past somebody who's fallen out of their wheelchair in the hallway of a hospital, you are negligent.
0: (laughs) That is negligence. Or you're probably negligent. (laughs) The words, like, I've probably repeated them a couple times here, but the words reasonably foreseeable are in fact a specific legal term. They're a specific standard in the same way that beyond a reasonable doubt is. Hypothetically, by this logic, intoxication should be a mitigating factor in applying blame in a court of law but over the sa- uh, the last several decades in canada as well as elsewhere the use of intoxication as a defense has become more and more circumscribed and the situations where it may be used narrower and narrower due to an understandable concern over offenses like drunk driving and domestic abuse right And the basic logic behind this is while your decision to get behind the wheel or drunkenly hit your spouse may be due in part to lowered inhibition, the decision to get drunk without an appropriate plan to get home or around a wife around whom you have trouble controlling your anger is a choice freely taken. In the 1978 uh, Supreme Court decision in the case of Regina v. Leary, it was found that, the, uh, that in cases where intoxication was used as a defense against the general intent component of mens rea, the defendant could instead be charged for becoming criminally intoxicated. In the 1994 Supreme Court case of Regina v. Davio, this was ruled a violation of the principles of fundamental justice and the defendant's right against self-incrimination, and a retrial allowing the defense was ordered. The Leary rule wasn't entirely overturned, but rather an exception was created for extreme intoxication akin to insanity, where the accused is essentially an automaton with no control or even awareness of their own actions. And you
1: can kind of see where they're coming from with this because mens rea laws date back i mean to antiquity. We've had laws on the books about insanity and about criminal responsibility dating back a very long time in our history. But they're meant to protect people who have mental illnesses because you don't choose to become mentally ill if you have a psychotic condition that makes it hard for you to to tell what you're doing or to tell right from wrong or to control your actions, you didn't choose to end up in that situation. That's something that just kind of happened to you. But if you get super drunk and then you beat your wife, like, you- you did choose to get super drunk. You had an element of choice to this, which is why involuntary intoxication can be used as a, as a defense in some cases.
0: And I think we can all say pretty fairly, like if you are a chronic drinker or you have a lot of experience with alcohol, you know how you behave. Yeah. There is an element of responsibility, even if it is less so than a cold-blooded premeditated version of the same act. I'm, I'm gonna clarify this. All the cases I'm mentioning are gonna be like R versus, meaning Regina versus, and that's because uh, unlike in the United States, where it, uh, cases are listed as United States versus Smith, like you're you're fighting the entirety of the United States at once, uh, in Canada you have to personally fight the Queen.
1: Yes, it's true. You're you're required to fight Her Majesty. In a court of law. You don't fist fight Liz for your freedom. That's not the Canadian court system. I really hope you would have learned about it by now if it was.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Like, we should have, like, eight documentaries already if you had to personally (laughs) withstand an ass whooping from Elizabeth II.
1: (laughs) That would have been in a bathroom fun fact reader at some point in your life, even if you're not Canadian. (laughs) It would have come up.
0: (laughs) It Definitely would have come up. That is too interesting not to be a Vox article. Can you imagine if that's
1: how it was? Like when William someday takes over, we're all going to have to readjust our fighting styles to whoop William. Right.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> like, we can't go for the knees anymore. You know, Liz used to have weak knees.
1: <laughs> this is why it's not a viable justice system to fight blood monarchy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the the strength of the given monarch can vary a lot. At least under a democracy, you can get somebody with some sweet gains.
1: Uh after like Liz turns 90, Canada just turns into Gotham because <laughs> <laughs> everybody can overpower the queen. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good justice system, but it's a very satisfying yeah. one.
0: <laughs> she goes down with a broken hip one year and then like it's just the frozen version of the purge. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not how the Canadian justice system works, but it looks that way on paper.
0: At one point of controversy, particularly among victims' advocacy groups, was that Regina v. Davio was the case of a horrific sexual assault involving an elderly alcoholic and a wheelchair-bound woman with partial paralysis. Oh, no. no yeah, oh, I, I'm not going to fully describe it because I don't need
1: to. You can kind of connect the dots on this one. It's not good.
0: It was bad. It was <laughs> real bad. It was real bad. The Davio case was flawed for several reasons, including that the appellant's drunken blackout would not have met the modern standards for automatism, due in part to advances in her understanding of neurology. Right. Not remembering your actions is not quite the same thing as a deeply out of character, chemically induced state of autopilot. Yeah, it likewise led to massive public backlash from women's and victims groups concerned that it would lead to future cases exonerating offenders for violent crimes against women and children.
1: I I can see where everybody is, where everyone's coming from, frankly. This is why this question is being decided by people who are have much fancier credentials and are much smarter than I am. <laughs> like
0: this, Yeah, like this is difficult. There's a mm-hmm. reason
1: I did not choose uh, to decide supreme court cases with my life. Like this is this is difficult stuff.
0: Public safety of, you know, abuse victims is not an insignificant harm. No,
1: and I mean people people will be harmed either way. No matter how this case is yes. decided, there will be people whose lives are upended by this, people who are very upset with this verdict. It's tough. No part of this is easy.
0: Yeah, so soon after, in 1995, the current Canadian government responded to the court's decision with a new law, Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code, which barred use of automatism uh, resulting from self-induced intoxication as a defense in the case of violent crimes, effectively reinstating the heart of the Leary Rule for those offensive. And it has been ambiguous from the start whether or not Section 33.1 could stand up to judicial review, and legal experts at the time pointed out that this eliminated the possibility of a fair trial and just defense from defendants with cases of true automatism. But, for the past 25 years, no case related to the question has ever reached the Supreme Court of Canada, in no small part because not many people really wanted to reopen the question. Mm.
1: Who wants to wade into that shark pond?
0: (laughs) Like, and like, maybe this is because, like, the bar to prove automatism is incredibly high, the kind of people who commit these crimes tend to rely on legal aid, and poorly funded defense lawyers rarely have access to the kind of high-level legal experts need to clear that bar. But if we're completely honest with ourselves, it's probably also because the kind of people who commit these crimes are very rarely all that sympathetic.
1: Yeah, like, a lot of the cases in Canada that have really tested this intoxication question are so horrifying, so unpalatable, that even if there is a constitutional challenge to be had, like, even if there is a good debate to be had about what constitutes right mind, what constitutes mens rea, these cases are just so horrific that nobody really wants this to be the case, that takes us down that road. Nobody wants to be the lawyer that tries to get the wheelchair rapist guy out of prison. Like
0: no, nobody wants to be that guy.
1: <laughs> oh, it's such an awful case. That that's not what you want to be the defining moment of your career for for most people. Like yeah. Ugh. It's it's a lot. And uh, with a lot of these, you just kind of wait knowing that a case is going to come up eventually that's going to challenge these laws. It's going to happen. It did happen
0: eventually someone sympathetic is going to walk into this meat grinder and that's your moment. There's a saying in the legal profession, you know, bad cases make bad laws.
1: Case law is, is a tough thing. Once the precedent mm-hmm. is set, it's hard to unset a precedent.
0: Yeah, because it's, it's not getting unset until it gets in front of the Supreme Court again.
1: Which our Canadian Supreme Court is un- it's like the American Supreme Court, it has the same number of justices, but they all wear delightful Santa Claus robes.
0: <laughs> yeah, they they wear Santa Mumus.
1: They do wear Santa Mumus. That's true. That's not a joke.
0: Also, they're not life appointments. No, they're not
1: lifetime appointments. And also, Canadians cannot name a single fucking person on the Supreme Court. No, I
0: I could, I, I know I know someone who used to be on the Supreme Court, but it's Beverly McLaughlin, which is the only one anyone knows. I, I even I don't
1: even know that. I just the Canadian Supreme Court, like. Canadian case law is not quite as, like, groundbreaking as American case law tends to be. Canada doesn't tend to do things, like...
0: It's, it's far less politicized.
1: Yeah, it's far less political. They don't tend to decide political policy in the same way that U.S. Supreme Court does. The cases that go before it tend to be about more... Fuzzy. It's usually more technical. It's very technical issues of, like, technical laws, so people just don't care. <laughs> like, fundamental human rights don't go before the Canadian Supreme Court very often, and it's not very often no. that we, like, appoint extremists to the Supreme Court who will sit there until they literally die in their chair. That's not how Canada runs the Supreme Court.
0: That's That's a very weird thing for Canada.
1: It would be very weird. It's a weird system for the United States, they just don't know it.
0: Yeah, like, the fact that I can name every single member of the American Supreme Court, but, like, none of the members of the Canadian Supreme Court is, I think, good. I think that's good, actually.
1: (laughs) I just, I feel reasonably confident that, like, my human rights, as a person in Canada, like, will not be suddenly taken away from me because some extremists got on the the Canadian Supreme Court. Like, I could be wrong. Maybe a year from now I will live in a mining camp below the earth, (laughs) a slave of, of some sort of Canadian mining company and some... Human rights issue gone awry, but it it feels unlikely.
0: But it, it tends not to be world shaking.
1: It's not the same circus that the American Supreme Court is. It's not as entertaining.
0: Yeah, like the last time the Canadian courts were interesting and important was the case that decriminalized uh, assisted suicide. But I think the last time they were interesting was when we accidentally legalized bestiality.
1: Oh, that was fun for like an afternoon, and then they that was were like, hilarious. No. <laughs> I think it was more that we realized it technically wasn't illegal in Canada and never had been. That it hadn't
0: been illegal all along. Yeah, that was exactly what it was. There was a little bit of journalistic malpractice around this, where it was sort of reported as, like, court legalizes bestiality. But technically what was happening was, like, another horrifying, like, incest-slash-rape case... Where like one of the legal points was just like okay you can't charge me with like bestiality because there was no penetration, and then like we all looked at the <laughs> law and they're like oh yeah no it's you ha- you have to penetrate for it to be bestiality according to Canadian law. <laughs>
1: Whoops. There's some really horrific things that happen
0: in Canada. It, Technically, for a very large part of Canadian history, you could legally molest a horse. <laughs> You could fondle, but you could not penetrate. Oh, no. We we banned everything after third base, but everything up to it was kosher. (laughs) I believe we've
1: amended that. I think as soon as we realized, like, ah, you can technically grow up a horse. We were like, we don't want to live in a country where you can technically grow up a horse. We should... Someone should do something.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, I think it was specifically in the legal decision where they're just like, yeah, the legislature should fix this. <laughs>
1: we also briefly, like, we made gay marriage legal quite a while ago, and then it was, like, briefly illegal again for an afternoon because, like, we realized somebody hadn't properly codified something and then it was just like, no, we fixed it. It's, it's legal again. It's legal
0: again. <laughs> Don't worry. We just, we plugged it back in. <laughs> Uh, although I also liked it when, uh, the not this uh, recent Trude- Trudeau administration, but the uh, previous Justin Trudeau administration, when they went into office, and then, like, they, they were doing some spring cleaning, and they decriminalized witchcraft and dueling. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, every now and then, somebody, like... <laughs> you figure like, we didn't need those as laws
1: anymore? Somebody cracks open a Canadian law book and is like, oh, my God, we haven't checked this since, like, 1837. Somebody should really <laughs> check this more often. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We probably shouldn't have a law specifically outlawing witchcraft in this day and age. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, it wouldn't hold up to a constitutional necessary. challenge at all, but
0: we should probably
1: just no. strike it off the books.
0: <laughs> yeah, we just probably shouldn't be here. This is not something we're using. <laughs> Love it. It's like when you find... You find that old hair dryer that hasn't worked in fifty years in the back of the Just throw it out. Garage. Just throw it out. Just throw it out. We're no
1: longer gonna execute people for horse theft. Like let's
0: just get that out of there. <laughs> no <laughs> Like why do we have a dueling offense when assault is already illegal?
1: <laughs> yeah, shooting somebody in broad daylight at high noon is already super illegal. <laughs>
0: But, uh, we've discussed this before, but a common misconception about pleading insanity is that you can't just have a mental illness and get away with any crime. Like, a depression diagnosis is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You don't get unlimited free crime when the tests come back autism.
1: I've gotten into so many, like, pointless, unproductive Facebook debates with so many aunts. (laughs) Other people's aunts, my own aunts, about how the insanity pleas work. There, there's a, quite a high threshold. There's a very high bar. You have to have been incapable of knowing that what you did was wrong. And most people who have a diagnosed mental illness are capable of knowing right from wrong. One, they're more likely to be a victim than a perpetrator of a crime. But when they are the perpetrator of a crime, usually your mental illness is not severe enough for it to have been a viable defense for you.
0: I think we could all agree that I am an exceedingly weird human being. Like I cannot plead insanity <laughs> at all. Jessica does
1: not get to live in her own personal version of the
0: purge. <laughs> like, yeah. I do not get, to, I do not get to be a one man fucking vigilante against all municipal bylaws just because I'm a little bit strange. <laughs> no, <laughs> that is, that is not how anything works. There's, there's a lot of
1: misconceptions about this, especially because Canada has had some very high profile and Canada we don't have an insanity plea you plead not criminally responsible so you acknowledge that your body physically did the thing but you are not responsible for your actions because of your mental health or because of something else that's going on with you um mentally there's there's two big tests in the legal system one is are you competent to stand trial we can't put somebody who's comatose on trial. Like, the fact that you are physically dragged into a courtroom does not mean that you're capable of standing trial.
0: Even if we prop you up at a weekend, weekend at Bernie's this shit, like, no. We cannot,
1: we cannot weekend at Bernie's you through a trial. It's that super illegal, uh, super huge violation of your basic human rights. You have to be able to understand what's going on not in a complex sense you you basically the bar to to stand trial is quite low children can pass it but you have to understand what's going on and you have to be able to meaningfully assist in your own defense at the very least you have to know enough to not sabotage your own defense one of my professors in grad school had a woman whose trial was thrown out because it was found that she had not been competent to stand trial because like she stood on the desk during the trial and accused her lawyer of being in cahoots with the devil, yeah. and the judge was like, "No, why? Yeah,
0: absolutely, we're not, not. doing
1: this." <laughs> like she apparently like made a lot of animal nope. sounds during the trial. She was screaming, and they were like, "No, this is not not happening." So you have this, to be this is
0: not a not cool. You have to
1: be fit enough to stand trial, and once you're found fit to stand trial, then. You have to have been uh, so incapacitated, so mentally ill, so unaware of your actions, that you can't be found criminally responsible. And a lot of people mess these things up, because sometimes you can be found not fit to stand trial for a very long time, but then still be found criminally responsible for what you did. Or you can be fit to stand trial right away, and then you can be found criminally not responsible for what you did. And then every person over 45... Uh, will take to Facebook to complain that Canada just lets murderers walk free.
0: (laughs) Yeah. like I literally have a cousin I no longer talk to because of her opinions on this subject. Oh, I know which one this is. Because she was just... (laughs) Oh, you know exactly who this is. I've seen you fight this person on Facebook. She just, like, refused to understand. Because, like, she's not this dumb. She just refused to understand that you can't hold people with, like, violent incapable of understanding reality schizophrenia, guilty of murder. (laughs) You can't.
1: (laughs) No, and people have this huge misconception that, like, if we find you not criminally responsible, it means you can go now, which is not true. No. If you're found criminally not responsible, you are held indefinitely until you are deemed to be safe to return to the community, which means you can spend the rest of your life in a forensic mental hospital, which is not... It's not summer camp. Like, it's not a fun place to be.
0: You don't go free. You get placed under medical supervision until the the condition that resulted in the crime is resolved to a degree that the event won't likely be repeated. Which can mean never, actually. It can mean never. It can. (laughs) And a lot of-
1: This is why a lot of people who qualify for the NCR defense don't plead NCR. Because oftentimes- the, the possible punishment for the crime is so relatively minor, it's not worth the risk of spending the rest of your life in a mental hospital.
0: One of the few cases in which you actually do get to go free is actually when you just have, like, a genuine once-in-a-lifetime mi- fluke that immediately kind of resets itself. But that's also harder to prove.
1: That's the hardest kind of NCR to prove. It's much easier to prove NCR when the, when the issues are, like, permanent. If it's, if it's a condition, if you have a psychotic condition, if you've got something that's very difficult to manage, and there's lots and lots of doctors that can come forward and confirm that, like, yes, this is an issue that you struggle with, it's a little easier to be like, okay, this was what your mental state was like at the time of the crime. But when you plead temporary insanity, it can be tough to prove that. How do you prove what somebody's mental health was like on a particular night in August three years ago?
0: And That's one of the reasons why insanity defenses rarely succeed. And yeah. They, because they usually required a raised standard of proof on the part of the defense. Essentially, the argument is that due to an underlying medical condition, the defendant is either incapable of fully controlling their actions or incapable of understanding why their actions were wrong. And this standard is generally referred to as McNaughton Rules. After a Scottish woodcutter who shot and murdered an architect, he mistook for the Prime Minister of Britain, who he blamed for various personal and financial mishaps in 1843. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he just ran into this dude. He's just like, it's the Prime Minister, blam! <laughs> Which raises its own set of questions. <laughs> yeah, so many. <laughs> Funnest fact, while McNaughton himself was acquitted for reasons of insanity, he actually would not have been able to successfully plead insanity under the McNaughton rules as formulated here. Uh, Even if a mental health issue is what led him to think that the Prime Minister was to blame for his problems and to mistake an innocent architect for a politician, it did not prevent him from understanding that shooting people kills them and that murder is wrong.
1: (laughs) It's true. It's a very high bar. In Canada, we had a very prominent case that kind of brought this to light. Even if you live in the U.S., you probably heard of it. There was a man named Vincent Lee who had a psychotic break on a Greyhound bus. He ended up decapitating another passenger. Hugely traumatic. Just an
0: innocent, innocent carnival barker.
1: Absolutely horrific event. Um, horrible for everybody involved. But it was-
0: He ate his eyes! Yeah, it
1: wasn't good. <laughs> it, it made world news. It was bad. Every part of this case was awful. But he did end up successfully pleading not criminally responsible. He had a very severe psychotic condition that developed very, very quickly. But he he ended up spending years upon years uh, in Mm -hmm. mental hospitals trying to restore his mental health before he could be safely released into the community. But a lot of people reacted very negatively to this verdict. They felt that he had been let off. It led to a lot of people kind of saying that, oh, if you have any mental illness, you can do whatever you want. But in kind of the same time frame, Canada had another famous case where a man named Luca Magnata, who was a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, ended up dismembering a person, and I believe he mailed this man's foot to an elementary school. Like he did some pretty deranged thing. Yeah, he
0: he I think he also mailed something to like a political party or something. Yeah, he
1: mailed I think he mailed the liberals a hand. Like he didn't it wasn't good. He mailed a lot of He mailed pieces of this man all over the country, he was obviously profoundly mentally ill, and he pled not criminally responsible, but his plea failed. Even though they acknowledged that his schizophrenia was probably a contributing factor in all of the horrific things that he did, it wasn't severe enough for him to not be responsible for his actions. The fact that he took actions to evade the police, like this ended up being quite a manhunt, I think they apprehended him in Europe, he didn't do a great job of covering his tracks, and he didn't do a great job of evading the police, but the fact that he even attempted to undercut his NCR defense, he did not successfully plead not criminally responsible, even though he had very severe mental health issues. So it's not, it's not as cut and dry as your grandma thinks. <laughs>
0: Similarly to insanity, we have the defense of automatism, which is distinct in a number of ways. It can include both naturally occurring events like sleepwalking, but also, of course, drinking three bottles of hand sanitizer. Uh, Non-mental disorder automatism is different from insanity in the sense that things like intoxication are by definition temporary conditions unless you're a lush, so a successful plea of automatism would likely result in simple release.
1: Yeah, it's it's not a it's not a defense that comes up very often, because <laughs> even the same issue comes up with every form of automatism. Even if you were asleep during the crime, sometimes you have a responsibility to not put yourself in that position. If you are narcoleptic and you decide to drive and you get into a car accident while asleep, you still probably shouldn't have been driving if you knew you were narcoleptic. Like there are.
0: <laughs> um, but this all brings us to Mr. David Sullivan and Mr. Thomas Chan. The Sullivan case is somewhat simpler, and I shall summarize the relevant facts first before moving on to Mr. Chan's case, which is strikingly similar in many ways, although the two defendants are quite different. In 2013, then-44-year-old David Sullivan lived in a condominium with his elderly mother, Jean, in Whitby, Ontario, on the outskirts of Toronto. He was unemployed and had a history of minor crime and violence, as well as one of childhood abuse. He had likewise struggled with an addiction to crack and narcotics and severe chronic depression. He also had a smoking problem, for which he was prescribed bupropion, used to treat both major depression and nicotine addiction and sold under the name Wellbutrin. Among other side effects, bupropion is known to occasionally cause increased suicidal ideation and psychosis. Soon after Sullivan started taking and occasionally abusing bupropion, he began experiencing episodes where he was convinced that the condo was infested by aliens he called Archons.
1: Okay, not great. You should speak with your doctor if you take new medication and you find aliens under the sink.
0: Talk to your doctor about the aliens living in your closet. (laughs) (laughs) On December 1st, 2013, Sullivan decided to commit suicide and took somewhere between 30 and 80 doses of bupropion. He then experienced an extreme psychotic break, and distressed, tried to wake his mother, claiming he had eaten bad meat and asking her to help him throw up. He then spent most of the night cowering in the corner of her room, becoming extremely distraught, talking about the invisible aliens menacing him. Finally, he became convinced that he had captured one of the archon in the living room, and brought his mother into the room to show her. When she tried to tell him there was nothing there, he came to the conclusion that she was an archon. at which point he attacked her, stabbing her six times with two kitchen knives. His mother screamed during the attack, David, I'm your mother! At which point, Mr. Sullivan dropped the knives and ran into, the be- into a bedroom. When police arrived, Sullivan was running around outside the building, incoherently screaming. Oh,
1: so just a traumatic night for everybody.
0: His mother survived the attack, although she died of an unrelated heart attack before his trial in 2016.
1: Oh. For future reference, if you have a relative who suddenly starts talking about how there's aliens in the apartment, you should probably call somebody. Don't keep that information to yourself. Uh, please get them help. <laughs>
0: call a doctor. <laughs> please call 911.
1: <laughs> please just, just get them some help. Don't let them deal with the aliens alone.
0: I don't know. I just feel like... The The time where your adult son spends half the night crying in a corner of your bedroom because he quote-unquote ate bad meat and now there are aliens? I think you call a doctor. <laughs> yeah,
1: like, you're not bothering them. You're not wasting their time. Like, please just call. They're, they're gonna want to hear from you. <laughs> uh,
0: at trial, Sullivan did not question the constitutionality of Section 33.1, Rather, he attempted to argue that it didn't apply. Hmm. He hadn't taken the drugs with the purpose of intoxication. He had underlying mental health issues. Therefore, the defense of mental mental disorder-induced automatism should apply. While the judge agreed that Mr. Sullivan had no control over his actions during the attacks, they likewise found that the reason why Sullivan took the medication didn't matter so long as he took it intentionally, further disbelieving Sullivan's story of a suicide attempt rather than recreational abuse of the drug, and Sullivan was found guilty of aggravated assault, assault with a weapon, as well as a procedural breach. Does anybody take 80 Welbutrin recreationally? Like, that's... Uh, that's... That's the part that bothered me, too. Like, you're not gonna have a nose left after you're done snorting that. <laughs> 80 of them. Like,
1: that's... At that point, like...
0: I don't think that's a recreational dose. It's it's too many to do accidentally, it's too many to do recreationally, at a certain point. Like, it's if you're not trying to kill yourself, there's no explanation for this.
1: Like, clearly the court felt otherwise, but just like, to me, as as a non-lawyer, I don't know, it sounds like a lot. It sounds like too many.
0: Over 30 feels like too many to take just on the spur of the moment because you wanted to get high. There's easier ways to do that. <laughs> but Sullivan would go on to serve five years before he was released. This brings us to the case of Regina versus Chan. In 2015, Thomas Chan was a 19-year-old first-year policing student living in Petersburg, Ontario. He had no history of violence, no history of mental illness. He did, however, have a history of head injuries. He was a high school rugby star who had quit the sport during his final year of high school after a series of concussions began affecting his academic performance. Chan was the son of a respectable gastroenterologist, Dr. Andrew Chan. Possibly the most traumatic event of Thomas's Chan's life thus far was the painful end of his parents' marriage, after his father left his mother, Roz, for his then-assistant, Lynn Whitvane.
1: Oof. Also, what a name.
0: Uh, I swear this is relevant. I'm not just digging up past gossip. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was gonna say, are you just feeling gossipy, Jessica? Or do you just love that she has, like... <laughs> that's the kind of name, that, like, for a woman who owns a coat made out of puppies. Like, that's...
0: <laughs> Either you're a home wrecker or you are, like, a, a cruel dowager who forbids your daughter to marry that scamp.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like that one.
0: Either you need to dress in 90% puppy fur, or you have to do something else to earn this kind of a last name. Lynn Whitveen. It's such a
1: good one. Like I she's... like it so much.
0: But while Chan's mother and older sister had an understandably chilly relationship with Whitveen, Thomas himself spent much of his time moving between his father's house with Whitveen and the house of his mother and her new partner playing family diplomat, and he and Whitveen were fond of each other. On December 29th, 2015, Chan met with several of his former high school friends for drinks at a local uh, sports bar. There, they decided to pool their money and buy some magic mushrooms before heading back to Chan's basement at his mother's house. It's an
1: ominous start. They'd
0: done psilocybin before and they were familiar with its effects. And while magic mushrooms are still very much illegal in Canada, their production and distribution are all but unenforced partially because they're easy to grow basically anywhere and largely unassociated with organized crime, but also because they're about as soft as a, a drug as drugs can be. They are non-addictive, relatively mild hallucinogens, and under normal circumstances, the highest risk of taking magic mushrooms is a bad trip where you hallucinate that you're a book and people keep trying to read you, uh, or accidentally eating the wrong kind of mushroom. Those
1: were that was a very specific example
0: <laughs> i knew a, i know a guy who did salvia and had a bad trip then. <laughs> yeah apparently that was that was real hard
1: <laughs> don't read me
0: <laughs>
1: i mean yeah like you can grow them in a closet the hell's angels don't tend to traffic in magic mushrooms I mean, I it, they were quite easy to get a hold of at my high school. I'll say that.
0: <laughs> Back at the basement, each of the boys had a handful of mushrooms out of the Ziploc bag they bought, and an hour later, all of them were having a pleasant giggly trip. That's such a precise dose—just a handful out of a Ziploc bag. <laughs> just, just a, just a fistful of raw magic mushrooms from a from a Ziploc you bought off a local local dealer. Love it. Just nostalgia. Not that I've ever done mushrooms. I'm very bored. You probably shouldn't. Uh, I mean, like, honestly, I also do have a history of concussions, I wouldn't want to stab anybody. (laughs) No. But the exception was Thomas, who complained that he wasn't feeling anything. Oh no. Thomas Chan was well over six feet tall and athletic, so he came to the conclusion that he must need a higher dose oh, like... to compensate for his bigger size and had another handful of mushrooms. Uh, I thought that's where this was going. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, It's it, Okay, it's the logic of every person who an hour after doing drugs, everybody else is feeling it. You go like, okay, but like, I'm not feeling it. Time to take double the dosage I took before. And then all of a sudden... Holy shit. <laughs> this is how my roommate ended up ended up eating
1: two entire edibles, like 16 doses in an hour and then had to miss work for 3 days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you want to be gradual with how you up your dosage, especially with things you eat orally. That's like probably the one of the um uh, the slowest ways of ingesting a drug. It like if you smoke it or you inject it, it hits you right away. Edibles sneak up on you, and then they jump you in an alley. (laughs) You need to give them time. There's just a lot of biochemistry, weight, you know, composition of your previous meals that goes into how fast they hit you and when. Yeah. But by 2am, Chan was clearly in the midst of a bad trip and becoming increasingly agitated. He began raving gibberish, including the word devils and other religious imagery, and ran upstairs to his parents' room, waking both his mother and stepfather, who tried unsuccessfully to calm him down. He then ran out of the house, shoeless and shirtless in the midst of the Canadian winter, over to the nearby house his father shared with Whitveen. Oh, they lived, like, nearby. They lived nearby. They lived in the same broad neighborhood in Petersburg. Okay, okay. It was after 3 a.m. when Chan broke in through a window. Footage from security cameras installed by Andrew Chan show him trying to subdu- subdue his son in the hallway as Whitveen looks on. Thomas Chan then went to the kitchen and took out a butcher's knife from a drawer. He said that he was performing God's will and that this was a house of Satan. Oh. He then repeatedly stabbed his father who pleaded, It's daddy, it's daddy. Oh. That's
1: heartbreaking.
0: They do not recognize the person who is in this body. Right. There is no recognition in this kid's eyes. There's no getting through to him at all. No. Chan then turned on Whitveen, stabbing her repeatedly before she fled to the master bedroom, Thomas chasing after her, saying, This is a day of reckoning. Whitveen sat on the floor, trying to dial emergency services, when Thomas caught up to her, slashed her across the shoulder. She said... Thomas, it's Lynn, I love you. He then stabbed her in the right eye. Oh my god. At this point, Chan left the bedroom and paced in the front hall. Audio recording shows him saying, I love you all so much, I don't want to do this. Okay. Not good. Holy shit. (laughs) When police arrived, Chan yelled, This is a holy place. Drop the knife and unlock the door. He seemed calm, but when officers attempted to bring him into custody, he fought, screaming, "I am God. I will do it again," oh. and eventually put a bullet in my head. Oh my god. His stepfather, who had followed Thomas, watched as multiple officers struggled to subdue his blood-covered stepson in the front lawn. Andrew Chan bled to death while Lynn Whitveen was taken to surgery and survived despite significant injury and the complete loss of her right eye.
1: Wow. That's impressive. Traumatic. Horrible. Yeah. Ugh.
0: It, it's it's a lot. It's probably the most gruesome Maclean's article I've ever read.
1: Oh my god, this was in Maclean's magazine.
0: Yes, <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's this is not their usual thing. Maclean's is like, like no. a Canadian soft politics magazine. It,
0: yeah, like every year they do like the twenty five top universities in Canada. Like, I was going to say their university rankings.
1: They're just like, yeah, you should go to University of Alberta. It has the butter dome. Like that's they run <laughs> they run articles about like campus culture. They do every time the liberal party gets a new leader like they run that kind of stuff not usually like hard boiled true crime that's this is not their usual beat
0: no like they, they had an entire article questioning the results of the chan trial and covering the up, the upcoming appeal
1: It's like picking up a farmer's almanac and getting, like, a detailed blow-by-blow account of, like, the Jack the Ripper murders. This is not what you'd expect.
0: So Thomas Chan spent the next several hours coming back to himself and realizing what he had done in a jail cell where the guards put him on suicide watch.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: At trial, Chan pled not guilty, and his defense argued that the psilocybin had interacted with his concussion-related brain injuries to result in a horrifying, violent break from reality. But as far as Canadian law was concerned, that he had no control over his actions and no reason to think two handfuls of magic mushrooms would lead to the death of his father didn't matter. In the decision, the judge described Thomas Chan as a good kid who was no threat to society, but there was no choice but to find Chan guilty and sentence him to the mandatory minimum of five years in federal prison.
1: I'm I'm honestly surprised that it was that low. Canadian law is actually much harsher than people realize. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, murder, first degree and first and second degree murder in Canada tend to carry mandatory life sentences.
0: This brings us to the modern legal controversy. Despite having already served his sentence, David Sullivan, who is now living on the streets, still wanted his name cleared in the eyes of his remaining family, who blame him for what happened to his mother, and for the law to be overturned. His legal team is funded by Ontario Legal Aid, and they reached out to him in 2018 specifically to finally force the issue and put Section 33.1 up for review. They likewise began working with Thomas Chan's counsel, having noted the similarity between the two cases. As Chan was the more sympathetic appellant, they worked first to appeal his case. Interesting. Uh, They basically, they looked at these two and they're just like, uh, do we want the 51-year-old homeless former drug addict? Or do we want, like, the nice former rugby star?
1: (laughs) Right, there's kind of an art to choosing which case you really want to make into your test case you want to have enough cases that this is like a pressing issue that we need to deal with but yeah you want to put your best foot forward so to speak
0: although it, it, there is a bit of a problem where like the the chan case is just the way more horrific one it's super <laughs> horrific
1: it's, yeah it's so bad like they're both horrific but it's i don't it's
0: particularly gruesome
1: what he did is sort of worse i mean He's a more sympathetic person on the surface, perhaps, but yeah, it's there's so much more horror in his case.
0: Yeah, because in the Sullivan case, like, his mother screams and he takes off. Right. And...
1: She survives.
0: She survives. Uh, Chan's case was appealed on the constitutionality of Section 33.1, which was declared unconstitutional by the Ontario Superior Court which likewise ordered a retrial for Thomas Chan. The Crown moved to strike down the appeal, which may result in the case seeing the Supreme Court next year. On appeal October last year, Sullivan's defense argued both a challenge to the constitutionality of Section 3.3.1, referencing the Chan decision, and that the trial judge had had a mistaken definition of voluntary intoxication as well as some procedural points related to his release conditions. Earlier this year, he was acquitted of all charges. Oh. But because neither of the cases involved sexual assault and used a far stricter definition of automatism than Davio, the lawyers involved assumed that they could avoid the severity of backlash from victims groups. They were incorrect. <laughs>
1: yeah, I was going to say I mm, I don't think so even it's, yeah. it, I don't I don't know that stabbing is more palatable. Like it's
0: <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> This was in large part due to just the horrific nature of these cases, but also due to widespread journalistic malpractice that conflated automatism with quotidian drunkenness and focused on the sexual assault angle of the precedent, sending the decision right into the jaws of a pre-existing culture war issue. None other than the esteemed National Post reported this decision as Ontario Court throws out law barring self-induced intoxication as a defense for sexual assault.
1: Yeah, I mean that's where people's minds are going to go. This is
0: kind of it, That's how you're framing it. It's uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Like, <laughs> if, if you live in Canada, you may have very well seen reporting on this case shared on social media by dozens of deeply offended people who never bothered to read past the headline. I certainly did, and this was also the experience of Christina Chan, Thomas's sister. <laughs> oh, God. After the, the, the appeal came out, she went through everyone who shared this on their social media and... Message them personally uh, among her friend group and explain, like you're talking about my brother. This is actually what happened in the case.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think t- they wanted clicks, and so they went with yeah. what would get clicks. Real life is often much messier.
0: And like to be clear, like the family has been suffering during this time. Like of course. Thomas <laughs> Chan has a no contact order with all of his former high school friends his mother uh, had to live apart from her partner due to other non-contact orders with the stepfather if she ever wanted to see her son.
1: Criminal cases suck for everybody. That's the whole thing. They're just human tragedy. Like, even if you get that conviction or you, you get the acquittal or no matter what outcome you get, these cases are, are just human tragedy. That's...
0: That's, that's kind of the problem. Is like Everyone involved here is sort of a victim in their own way. Andrew Chan is a victim. Jean is a victim. David Sullivan is a victim. Thomas Chan is a victim. Lynn Whitveen, she received a settlement from the Chan family, but she's probably going to struggle the rest of her life with the disabilities caused by this incident.
1: Oh, for sure. And I mean, he was a kid taking mushrooms with his buddies in a basement. Like, a lot of people do that, and they don't stab their families. There's, you
0: know... And- And it's sort of what you're supposed to do when you do drugs. Like, when you do drugs, appropriate drug etiquette is, like, do it in a group. Do do it it with a babysitter. (laughs) Do it in the house. Somewhere you're familiar. Somewhere you have control over the environment. Like, he wasn't even in the same house as his dad.
1: (laughs) No, like, I, you know, I had friends in high school whose parents would be like, oh, here's some money. Like, you kids should go buy some mushrooms. That's what we did back in my day. Like, we had parents who were fine with this. Like, these magic mushrooms are not something you think of when you think, like, what's a life-ruining substance I can do today? Like, it's mm-hmm. it's not high on the list of things that are gonna completely unravel your entire fucking existence.
0: And, and what should the precedent be? The, like, no matter what reaction you have to a drug, if you intentionally put it in your mouth, you are responsible for everything that happens? Because I don't think that's a standard we actually want to hold people to. In the Chan case, like... Is it a reasonable assumption on his part? Like, oh yeah, like, if I take this, I might just stab my dad to death.
1: I think he's probably the only person ever who's had that kind of reaction to this drug.
0: I don't even think most people with concussions would have that concern.
1: Or in the other case, like, when he put all those drugs in his mouth, he didn't expect to stab somebody, he expected to die. And that Mm -hmm. was a pretty reasonable expectation to have when you're taking that amount of drugs.
0: When you treat your medicine cabinet like a row of shots, expecting to die is pretty reasonable. Expecting to see aliens and stab your mom is not.
1: <laughs> no. No. So it's it's a very difficult it's a very difficult situation. It's a very difficult case. And it's so it's very all of these cases are very case by case specific. It's very hard to pass sweeping laws about what counts as an automaton defense and what doesn't, what's a valid NCR defense and what's not. There's always going to be strange cases that pop up that we have to decide how to deal with them. But yeah, it's so difficult.
0: But part of the, the problem that we see coming out of social media is just we are very tempted to treat these things like they're simple.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very... We want to we wanna believe that all intoxication defenses are the same, that all cases are the same, and it's just, that's just not how life works. No two NCR defenses are the same. I mean, you can have two people with the same mental health condition go on trial for very similar crimes and have wildly different outcomes.
0: And I think it's just this case serves as a reminder that, one, it is always more simple, uh, more complicated than the headline would have you think. But two, the more you are tempted to fit individual people's circumstances into your pre-existing political beliefs, the more you are going to hurt people, whether you know it or not.
1: I mean, like, this is this is such a complex case that, like, the most advanced legal minds in our country are going to struggle to decide it. And, yeah, to try to decide it on Facebook is probably not wise. That's not the court we should probably try this issue in, as with all NCR defenses and as with all controversies arising around criminal responsibility. It's more complicated than a Facebook forward would have you believe.
0: As, as tempting as the the warm satisfying glow of moral superiority is, like it's just hard to say what the right answer is when it comes to a law intended to protect women and children and other victims of domestic abuse ends up in a nice young man who has never tried to hurt anybody going to jail for five years. That feels wrong.
1: (laughs) Sweeping condemnation is easy. Outrage is easy. Pitting yourself as anti-crime or tough on crime is an outwardly easy-to-justify stance. Arguing for clemency, leniency is is a lot more complicated. Yeah, I don't look forward to seeing discussions about this on on social media when these cases hit the courts.
0: It's gonna be uncomfortable, but don't worry. I my cousin is already essentially dead to me, so I don't have to hear I don't have to hear her take on it. I'm free.
1: We're <laughs> <or> good here.
0: <laughs> and sometimes, you know. It, you just metaphorically stab your family to death, you know? In a in a in a blocking sort of way. Hit that block button. <laughs> uh, but I, I had full mens rea on that one. Just yeah, that was a, a decision cold blooded.
1: I knew the outcome.
0: That was a blocking of a cousin in the first degree.
1: <laughs> Alright.
0: It was mitigating factors, Janelle. I was provoked. <laughs>
1: You were provoked. I'll take your side on that one.
0: <laughs> um, uh, we hope that you've enjoyed, question mark, this, I don't know that enjoyed uh, is
1: the word. Maybe we episode... hope you've learned? I don't even we know. We hope that you
0: appreciated.
1: <laughs> I, I don't know what outcome we I We hope that you here. endured. <laughs>
0: yeah, I guess endured is the word here. Uh, this has been Histories and Mysteries. I'm Jessica. And
1: I'm still Janelle. And I guess we don't have a sign-off yet. We'll we'll have to work on that. We're going to have to figure that out. And and we are big nerds.
0: (laughs) Huge.